Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Brooke Nevin, an actor and filmmaker who's been popping in movies like Infestation, Archie's Final Project, and I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer, and on television series like Cracked, Call Me Fitz, and Scorpion. This winter, she stars in It Takes a Christmas Village, which drops on Super Channel On Demand tomorrow, Wednesday, December 1st, in advance of its first playdate on Super Channel Hard and Home, Saturday, December 4th. In the seasonal spirit, Brooke picked Elf, John Favreau's delightful 2003 Christmas present of a movie starring Will Ferrell as Buddy, a human child raised at the North Pole by Santa's elves as one of their own. But now he's a big grown man, and it's time for Buddy to return to his own people, tracking down his long-lost father Walter to New York City, which, you know, isn't exactly known for good cheer. But this is a holiday movie. Hearts will be warmed, old wounds healed, love will blossom, and a lot of sugar will be consumed before it's over. Like, a lot of sugar. This is someone else's movie. Well, when you gave the parameters of choosing a favorite Christmas movie, I have to say it was a toss-up between Elf and Scrooge, but I wanted to lean into just the wonderment and enchantment that is Elf because every time I watch it, it puts a smile on my face. And I remember very vividly when I saw the movie in theaters and it was, um, it was shortly after I had uh, made the move to Los Angeles. So I saw it in a cinema just off of the third street promenade. And uh, I just remember being so enchanted by the film and moved to tears by, you know, the closet meter bursting ending <laughs> You know, the spirit of Christmas is so well and alive in this movie. And so um, I thought, what better way to, you know, kick off the season than talking about Elf? Yeah, it is just such a candy-coated pleasure, right? Like, it's, yes. it's I am probably the last person who would like it. I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm, like, I saw it in my mid-30s and cynical... Just sure. not a holiday guy generally. Yep. And yeah, when when James Conn starts singing at the end, it's just like, <laughs> okay, this is good. Just, but even before that, I was on board the Rankin Bass animation yeah. in the North Pole and just the, the sheer goodwill of it. There is something so pure about Will Ferrell's performance and the and the sort of enthusiasm that that he infects everybody with. His commitment is is infallible to yeah. the character. And when you see him moving through New York and you know mixed with footage of real hard-nosed cynical New Yorkers like doing double takes watching him, you know, hopscotch across the street or um or eating gum off of uh, a subway railing. Um, it's done with such commitment, such joie de vivre, and like um, this this pure innocence that you can really only equate to a mindset of a, a child. And he is so good at that. And he is such a, a huge threatening presence that it also is funny to just watch him charge at people over and over right. again. <laughs> um, because he's, and, and on like the sixth or seventh time I watched the movie, I realized that he's just he's heedless of his own size because of his time in the North pole, right? Like there's a reason for it that's, that's baked in yes. that buddy has always been too big and just hasn't thought about it in 20 years. And, and somehow there there's a, a vein of, of sadness and weird tragedy that just floats away instantly because. Well, I think, yeah. It, it also scratches at the reason why we watch movies are just sort of our existential, you know, 
quandary as human beings is being thrust into the world. I mean, we don't have a choice as humans where we grow up, which family we're born to, or, you know, maybe even which school we attend or city we end up in. And so here's Buddy who, you know, ended up in the North Pole. And it kind of speaks to, you know, the oldest story of time, like the ugly duckling or, you know, trying to fit in somewhere and, and feeling like, where do you belong in the world and finding your place? But it's done with such a unabashed sense of like self of this authenticity of like just leaning into joy and, and being unapologetic about who he is and what he likes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's amazing. He has teeth, but other than that, (laughs) there's, and that's still fantasy and it doesn't really matter. Um, but I was really surprised to to see just how layered it, it is for a storybook kind of narrative, for, for stuff where we're constantly asked to wave off a bunch of concerns because, right. you know, it's a Christmas movie and it doesn't really matter. There are moments where it's just allowed to be human, like Mary Steenburgen's performance of someone who is just completely unprepared for any of this, but willing to it's, it's a cliche, but she sees the best in everybody. She, she's just there to, she's not just there to be the sounding board for Walter, for, for Khan. She's there to move the story forward um, on an emotional level. Every time, like every time right. she enters the frame, she's rebalancing something or smoothing something out or, well, or connecting like people. Her, ex- her pure acceptance of Buddy is sort of, it kind of normalizes him in a way. Like mm. he becomes less of a misfit in her eyes because she can see the value that his presence brings into the family or his way of looking at the world. Um, and isn't somehow bothered by some of the more like, like the fact that he just destroys their living room. Yeah. <laughs> like he made a rocking horse out of their uh, console. Like that's okay. But <laughs> the, the fact that that, that act of creativity or like that offering of like, look, I made this for you is somehow uh, more important than the fact that he just, you know, destroys their New York apartment. Um, I, I, I kind of love that. And she, she's so believable in the role too. It's such a great counterpoint to James Caan. It's one of those movies where it would fall apart if one piece wasn't right. If any right. one of those actors wasn't cast properly, but right. I mean, Newhart and Asner, you, you, you sort of start, I, I keep trying to come up with a structure um, for discussion, but I just keep getting overwhelmed by how much fun it is to talk about the individual moments. Yes, but, yes. you know, the way, the way we are taken in with Bob Newhart reading the story and just the sort of beautiful Bob Newhart way. I, I love the idea too, that this Will Ferrell children's comedy is a sort of a backdoor for kids to discover who these other people are. Because, yes. I mean, you've got right in the middle of his thing where he was sort of insisting on working, where, where Farrell was insisting on working with everybody from The Godfather. You know, like Duvall played his father in Kicking and Screaming. And then there's this with Khan. And, and I think there's a third one somewhere. Um, but he's using the, you know, the hardness of James Khan that, that the adults bring with them against us because we get to watch him soften. But he's also bringing in these comedy idols, Newhart and Asner, who he must have grown up adoring so his his connection to them as a as a wide-eyed child makes perfect sense through the continuum of all this comedy but they get to be people they get to be real like the santa character is genuinely complicated 
Yes. Yeah. He's, he's, he's got a level of depth to him that I don't, maybe we don't always get to see this, you know, uh, cherry cheeked, you know, persona. Mm-hmm. He's very human. Yeah. And Papa Elf gets to be a little exasperated, which is what you get Bob Newhart for. I mean, he's perfect for this, but yeah, we also high see that. Sense of exasperation. Yeah. Yeah. And I even love that he, he's sort of just in one note throughout the movie, but it's the perfect note to play yeah. juxtaposed with how big Will Ferrell is and um, the arc of the other characters. It's just, um, but you know, it's really fun to, to hear about how John Favreau, when he first got the, the script, how he changed it into a version of ALF that was so much more um, accessible to families. Like it was a darker version, mm-hmm. apparently, at the beginning. And, um, you know, the whole edition of the Rankin Bass um, stop motion animation, I think it was such a brilliant addition to setting up like the North pole and that this was the world that buddy, the elf comes from, because I mean, for one thing, it's so timeless. I I mean, I grew, I also grew up with the Rankin Bass specials. Um, But I think it goes to this like willing suspension of disbelief, like, and setting up these sort of, uh, with the forced perspective of, mm-hmm. of Will Ferrell. <laughs> I mean, if you look really closely, you can actually see that the sets where, you know, where they align with the force perspective, it's like, it asks the audience to engage in the magic of the film. Like it's not this big CGI spectacle where you're just sort of passively watching a Christmas special and you have all of these uh, special effects coming at you, you sort of have to watch it knowing like, Oh, we're doing some good old fashioned film trickery here. And we're going to lean in and just accept it as, as true. And it kind of sets you up for then going on this journey of accepting that he's going to fall in love with Jovi at the department store. And she, and it's going to be, it's not going to be unrequited. Like she is going to, you know, see the magic and buddy and, and see him as like a romantic partner that's eligible. And, and then, and then, you know, we're going to believe that at the end, the the New Yorkers are going to come together to, raise enough Christmas spirit to make Santa's sled fly. Like I think from the beginning of the movie, it sort of sets you up to lean into um, the enchantment that the movie requires. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a film that like every Christmas movie keeps telling you that you've got to believe, but the buy-in for us is believing in it, in the handmade quality of this whole thing, that it is, it's there for us. Like it's a, it's a gift. It's a present to the audience. The second you sit down and, and the music starts, it's like, Oh, I, I know that it's the, it's huh. sorry. I keep trying to frame this, but it is such an intangible. It's just about the only Christmas movie from the first decade of the two thousands that has hung on, right. Mm-hmm. Everything else is sort of, you know, what do we have? We have Christmas with the cranks and we have this, right. the, okay, the, the Santa, Santa Claus Closet. sequels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, um, Oh, that awful, what was it? The Fred Claus, which again, casting Paul Giamatti as Santa is brilliant and it should have worked, but uh, um, it just, the idea of a Christmas movie, like what everyone's expectations are is that it will be a little cheesy, a little corny, a little fantastical, a, a film like Elf. Those are the, that's the only bar it has to clear and it has to do it without being cynical. Like if, if you're not on board after 10 minutes, you'll never be on board, but who isn't on board after those first 10 minutes? Like it's, it's just, it's so, it's so reassuring in its weird way. I think it's like, 
it's the thing that a lot of the reboot culture stuff now is trying to do, like say, hey, we like the same things you like. We saw the same things you saw growing up. This is our version of that. And, and Favreau somehow, like coming from swingers and, and made and films that are nowhere near as gentle or as welcoming, like his, his earlier work was really like Swingers is an incredibly angry film underneath all the comedy. It's about mm-hmm. somebody who thinks he's never going to get a shot. So he's built it for himself. And then again, like he must be amazing in the room t- to pitch this and be handed it by New Line, which, I mean, they were, they were rich in money and opportunity after the first Lord of the Rings film, they could do anything they wanted. And they trusted him with this very silly children's property, even though it started out, I think it was, was it originally a Jim Carrey darker property or is that well, just- Yeah, a- I've heard that Jim Carrey was originally, or that also that Chris Farley was was uh, a potential for Buddy. And it would have been, I mean, in each case it would have been a completely different movie. I think, oh, yeah. you know, I think Jim Carrey might have um, approximated some of Will Ferrell's like just leaning into the the wide-eyed, innocence of it all but there's a there's a bite there's a there's some there's something about Jim Carrey where I mean that's why he's so great as a Grinch <laughs> yeah. yeah you know no, he I, been I, terrifying his buddy like when he yeah, charges at people, people they would run away they would have run away yeah there wouldn't wouldn't have been this acceptance of you know um this this smiling large man coming at you <laughs> and like somehow you're like oh yeah I'll, I'll I'll put my arms out and accept this energy coming at me. But I think that also speaks to like elementally, like what an amazing, in the truest sense of the world word, what an amazing clown Will Ferrell is. Yeah. Yeah. His work, you know, first principles, like when you think of picking up certain things and like, Oh, what is a VCR? It's something that I store cookies in or, you know, like, yeah. Like it, it, it forces us to sort of rethink like how we move through the world. Like, yeah, what is an escalator or what, what is a revolving door? It's obviously a merry-go-round. Like I think it, it asks us to sort of reprocess, like stand and be in the moment and like, oh, but what could this be? Or how could we just engage and play and move through our day? Why wouldn't we smile? Yeah. He's so magnificently goofy. Um, and yet you're, you said this early on watching him, in contrast to New Yorkers, even mm-hmm. the slightly exaggerated, cynical version of New York that the movie just loves so much, mm-hmm. um, is it's a it's a it's a game of yes and that he's playing with the audience instead of the actors because yes. we know what they're going to do and how will he overcome it and just the the enthusiasm, the radiance, and the thing he does with his voice, which I always forget every time Will Ferrell sings, he goes soft. <laughs> becomes like he becomes gentle the 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 I duet there is song. yeah he gets quiet and uncertain and his frame kind of clinches in on himself a little bit and and yeah. watching him do that every time is it's never not funny yeah. um and occasionally misplaced there's a movie called winter solstice or winter passing one of the two winter movies that came out the same year and they've stuck together in my head he's in one of them he's in the one with ed harris and okay. he sings at one point and he pulls out his ukulele and sings a song and it's a drama and he's he's quite convincing he's very good at it but again will ferrell with a ukulele big man tiny instrument it's right. inherently funny right um and all the ways he compensates when he performs yeah, are really interesting. And then there's the scene with 
with Jovi with with Baby It's Cold Outside, which, you know, it's a creepy ass song. Um <laughs> <laughs> the moment is incredibly inappropriate. Yes. And somehow the harmonies make it okay. Like yeah. it is this beautiful meeting of two souls. Yeah. We buy music. into the partnership where, oh, well, yes, they're meant to be together. Yeah. And and as you said, his, his complete inappropriateness as any kind of romantic partner <laughs> goes away with that childlike sweetness. The way his read on that song is the best I've ever heard from the male partner. He's mm-hmm. not pushing. He's asking. No. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think that's also, you know, I think the filmmaker, I think John Favreau sort of took care of the audience that way where they didn't, it, it, when we saw the romance on camera, it, it's kind of stayed in a PG world. So it made mm-hmm. it very easy for us to accept and believe in. I think if it had delved into something else or if we're like, Oh, lights go off. And there was like, if there had been another part of this romance, like if you see like, when Tom Hanks character in big. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we realize, Oh, it's, <laughs> it, it's kind of has a different feel, you know? Um, I think we can buy into the happily ever after of it. So, so much more easily. And then also you have just the great physical comedy of like, right after that moment happens, he closes his eyes and then runs into you know, <laughs> yeah. a, a bathroom stall, which makes me laugh out loud every time. Um, yeah, I, I love that movie. I love it also because I think it speaks to just, you know, being a misfit. He's such a misfit in New York. And yeah. I, I think, you know, when we see one misfit being able to um, affect change in a whole a whole slew of New Yorkers, it's it, his spirit uplifts everyone. I think it's um, it's such a timeless story. And weirdly enough, this always is the awkward transition of any conversation about Elf. It's a post 9-11 movie. Like it doesn't acknowledge it, but New York needed a win. Yes. And seeing that film, that's what I meant about the, the film's idea of the cynical New York character. Cause it wasn't anymore. Not really like that. Those two years afterwards were the, re- the recovery after the attacks is, I can't believe I'm discussing 9-11 in context of Elf, but it, it's necessary. No, it is. I mean, it, it did. It came out in a time where New York needed to sort of reset an iconic building. The Empire State Building became yeah. uh, such a beautiful part of the movie and be able to to believe in the in the spirit of the city and the people who live in it. Yeah. So when you have this moment of pure goodwill, the film absolutely earns it, but I believe it. Yes. You know, of course, this is the moment where people need to believe in Santa Claus. I felt weirdly enough that the I'm not sure if you're following Ted Lasso, but this season had a Christmas episode. And, you know, I think we're far enough away from the air day that we can talk about it. But of course, Santa Claus exists in Ted Lasso's universe because because he needs him to. Yes. And here, without ever really going to lower Manhattan, without ever dealing with it. And how could you? You, you, I I don't think you can't do it in the context of this movie. Yeah. But if you know, it is somehow more uh, certainly it hit me like a fist in the chest when I was watching it mm-hmm. the, at the time. And like, yeah. Yeah, I guess November, 2003, it was, it was still raw and really powerful. And it was just lovely to see the locations and, and the city getting back on and, and Christmas. Cause that first year was a horrible Christmas, but yeah. yeah, two years later they were ready and the movie just captures something about it without ever mentioning it. No, it speaks to the resilience and the enduring spirit of 
of of New Yorkers, of people, and 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 by extension, anybody who you know leans into the goodwill of the movie. Yeah, I'm assuming it'll play really differently this year too for people who are having their first Christmas in a couple of years, right? Together, yeah. or even thinking about it, it's been mm-hmm. it's been a weird couple of years for holidays. Been, yeah. Uh, which is a weird enough transition, but also gets us to a Christmas movie. <laughs> I do like, have a Christmas but movie. you shot it during the pandemic. So how does that work? We like- did. Um, we we were right in sort of the the dead dead of winter, COVID winter. Um, yeah. We shot it in in and around Hamilton, Ontario, during a polar vortex and during the pandemic. You know, um, I'd like to say that in some ways, you know, I was so cognizant um, as as somebody very grateful one to be working during the pandemic. That was a huge gift, but also very cognizant of wanting to keep all of my cast and crew members safe. And I think we all were. So in terms of, you know, it, 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 this happens a lot when you're filming, you know, you come together for a short period of time and it's fast and furious, but you make really um, meaningful connections with people in like a three week period. And so they kind of, they feel like family, but I think on top of that, you know, going through all the protocols and um, testing and wearing the masks and doing everything that we could, I think it engendered the sense of really wanting to take care of one another while we were filming. Um, And I think that sort of infused the movie with its own sense of, of extra care. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would imagine I, I I can't I can't conceive of being able I mean obviously it's how acting works but I can't conceive of being able to turn all that off and give a light you know, performance it, in the middle of it, all of this. It was interesting because I, it was my first I had uh, directed two movies beforehand so I I had been on set during COVID with all of like the gloves and the shield and the, the mask but it's it is quite another thing to then be in front of the camera and then to take it all away and so yeah. I. I, I did have a, a couple of moments where, you know, Jesus sort of had to let go of that. Cause it's true. You can't, you can't have that going back in the back of your mind while you're trying to perform. You do have to sort of forget that it exists for a moment and just, you know, believe in the science of masks and that, you know, you hope that everybody's going to get to the end of the, the shoot. Um, and, you know, I've been working on quite a few sets and, and happy to, to say that, you know, I've never, I haven't gotten sick. So good. Um, Great. I'm glad to <laughs> I hear think it. that's a testament to how much in the film community we've been taking it seriously and, and wanting to protect one another too. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made it through, but everybody is just desperate for something to be happy about too, yeah. at the same time. Right. So I can completely see elf coming back on everybody's, Cue uh, everybody watch, watch grabbing strings. for it, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and just trying to forget for yeah. ninety-five minutes or however long it is, and, and watch this ludicrous fantasy, which is just so damn good. And uh, that, that, oh yeah, that that was the other anecdote I wanted to bring up. Um, you form bonds with these actors, mm-hmm. even though I mean I'd seen everybody in stuff, right? Deschanel really comes together in that one. I had seen her in Almost Famous for like those two scenes she has where she's just great. And I'm trying to remember if I'd already seen all the real girls or if that was around the corner. But I mean, I knew who she was and seeing her show up in this weird little Christmas comedy that in a role that you suddenly are convinced no one else could possibly have played it. 
uh, well, opposite Farrell. What I love about her character in the movie too is it, it does, I mean, I suppose it could sit next to like the pixie girl type, mm-hmm. you know, romance trope. Um, well, but it's the role played, she would play, right? In um, uh, in 500 Days of Summer. Exactly. But with this role, it, it's sort of like, there's an anti-sweetness to her, like, but I love it. Like she, she's not, she's not trying hard to be more than who she is. She's doing this job, but you know, there's not, she's not trying to be anybody who she's not, or there's not like, it's, it's up to Will Ferrell's character to, to, to make the first moves. And, um, and I, I love that she, she just has such a great presence in that movie. And she's so, I mean, she's got such an amazing singing voice too, which was written into the script Mm -hmm. because they cast her. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine how you would build the romantic relationship if they didn't have that musical number. It's just, it's so small and so delicate and the rest of the movie stops. It's the only time the film is quiet Mm -hmm. and it's the linchpin of the entire second half because without that relationship, he doesn't have a reason to come back. She doesn't have a reason to get mm-hmm. everyone singing. It's just, it's so essential. And it's just something she brought from home. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. It's so great to see a film that is open to those possibilities too. And and as you say, there's a million different versions of this film with different actors or different arrangements and different pieces. But I mean, of course, the reason it's lasted is because everything is in the right place, but there's just this warmth that radiates out of it almost 20 years later where yeah. This sounds weird, but given demographics and the way media works, there are probably more people who, when Ed Asner died, missed Santa than Lou Grant. Right. It's just oh. such a huge change. I, I, was, I saw him on stage once, maybe 10 years ago. He was in a production of Grace with Paul Rudd and Michael Shannon on Broadway. Oh, wow. Uh, and Shannon's partner, Catherine, something I can never remember her name. She was great. In it. Uh, the, it was just the four of them. Yeah. And it, uh, we saw it, my, my wife and I were in New York over Thanksgiving that year and we went and saw it and um, everybody got, you know, that thing that's corroded all theater where when a famous person steps out on the, on the stage for the first time, everybody applauds because they're excited. Right. Yeah. There's that, the, the role distance where it's like, oh, we're seeing the actor come out on stage instead of. Yeah. They can't help it. He's right there yeah. in person. How can you not? Yeah. But um, Brad got applause. Shannon got applause. Asner stopped the show. Yeah. He, he's not supposed to. He plays an exterminator who's a retiree who's just, he's, it's this really dark story told in reverse about a, uh, a man who moves down to Florida and becomes um, uh, sort of rabidly fundamentalist and, and gloms onto something and ends up killing three people. And <laughs> Asner's. Oh, wow. Yeah, Asner's there as a Holocaust survivor who's supposed to put all the religions into perspective. And he's it was a terrific performance, very small, very focused. Uh, but that was Santa, and people lost their shit. <laughs> uh, it, what, yeah. what an amazing, I mean, amazing career. I mean, for it to culminate in, you know, your crowning achievement playing Santa Claus. Yeah, a bunch of times. I think he did it on Murdoch Mysteries a couple of times, too, up here. Oh, really? Yeah, they, they were... They loved him. They were yeah. very, uh, very lucky to have him for their Christmas episodes. And they really started to lean into it. Yeah, yeah. But he has such warmth and such presence. And, and yeah, again, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, who else would you cast? 
Right. He's this, this legendary grump as Santa. They feel obvious once you see everybody inhabit the role, because it seems impossible that anyone else could have played those characters. Um, and, and at the time, you know, Will Ferrell wasn't like, it's amazing. Now we think, of course, he played that character. But of course, this was just shortly after Old School came out. And yeah. so he, he wasn't the bonafide sort of marquee movie star that he is now or that he was throughout the early aughts, you know? Yeah. People were still trying to figure out how to package him. Yeah. And, and I think he had the right instincts. He always knew which roles he should play. Yeah. And you can always tell when he's pushed outside of it. Mm-hmm. And this is just one of those things where uh, apparently there was supposed to be a sequel, but it fell apart because no one really thought it would work and no one ever talked about the specifics of it. It's all right. hinted at here and there. But I think on some level, well, I mean, he's successful enough that he doesn't need one, which is right. the real, that's the part real of it. hook, right? Sure. But also that story is over. It's it's perfect. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, I think it was sort of a gift to the audiences to protect that character where it's like, we we already bottled magic. That's been done. So to to chase after a redo for some sort of, you know, economic gain or some box office mojo, it, it wouldn't have felt the same way because it really was this, perfect incarnation at the right time yeah it's the christmas movie we needed <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that still, we didn't even know that we wanted yeah and it still kind of is because i haven't watched it yet this year which means i'm gonna have to get back to it but it's just so nice yeah how can you not yeah. um the the final question on the podcast is is what if anything of this film have you lifted or borrowed or referenced or outright stolen in your own work. It's a tough one because it's so specific, but you have the Christmas hook. So was there ever a moment where you thought, you know, what would Zoe Deschanel do or what would Will Ferrell do in this? Well, I think it's kind of like an ethos or a way to move through the world. And as an actor, you're always trying to figure out, you know, what the game of a scene is. There's so many games that are played in the movie. Um, Um, but committing so wholly to the circumstances, like, you know, for instance, when you see Will Ferrell with Peter Dinklage in that moment, they're, they're we didn't even both, talk about yeah, we didn't even talk about that, but they're committed so entirely to the circumstances of that scene. And, you know, Peter Dinklage is playing that scene for the drama that it is. He's not playing the comedy of it at all. And that's what makes that so funny yeah. is the juxtaposition of these two characters coming at each other some some with such innocence and like not, there's not a mean bo- bone in Betty's you know body but you know it, it, he's so insulting to his <laughs> character and just keeps pushing the button and um I think it is I mean, if you take anything away from the movie, especially in performances that, you know, what is the, what is the game of the scene and just commit to it wholly? Um, where is there a moment to play? Um, because that's, that's what we all sign up to do. That's why, you know, we buy tickets as audience goers is to go see actors play. The play is the thing. My thanks to Brooke Nevin whose new movie, It Takes a Christmas Village, hits Super Channel On Demand tomorrow, Wednesday, December 1st, and premieres on Super Channel Hard and Home Saturday, December 4th. You can also see Brooke this holiday season in the Hallmark Channel's Crashing Through the Snow, where she co-stars with friend of the show, Christian Brune. Thanks also to Jessica Schulman. She knows what she did. You can find Brooke on Twitter at Brooke Nevin, all one word, and you can find Elf on Blu-ray and DVD from Warner Home Entertainment, 
It's also streaming on Crave in Canada and HBO Max in the US, and available to buy and rent on VOD pretty much everywhere. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday and write far too many words about movies and television. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot already. Don't need too much candy. I'll see you next time.